We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. Time now for the Brian Barrett Show on EEI. All right, we're with you until midnight. So if you want to weigh in on whether or not you believe this Patriots team is a legitimate contender in the AFC, that's on the table at 617-779-7937. So I wanted to get to this as well. We'll get to Julian Edelman in a second because I felt he was really good on the Manning cast last night. I really enjoy the Manning cast. I think it's funny. And quite frankly, a lot of those Monday night games, they're not great. Like last night's game sucked. You never really, and I know it was relatively close into the third quarter, but you never really felt like the Giants had a chance to win that game. By the way, you see they fired Jason Garrett today. So a failed coach with the Cowboys, who remember, years ago gave up his play calling duties because he was a horrible play caller. You hired that guy to be your head coach. I I don't know how Dave Gettleman still has a job, the guy running that team. He drafted Saquon Barkley number two. They have basically gotten nothing out of that pick. Yeah, he's fine as a rookie. What's he done since then? an injury and more injuries and he hasn't quite frankly lived up to the hype whatsoever. You don't draft a running back second overall, not to mention the fact that they drafted Daniel Jones. That guy sucks. Think about this. The giants have been essentially trying to rebuild for years, right? They moved on from Eli and they can't do it whatsoever. And by the way, even when they still had Eli, they were trying to move on from Eli. They haven't made the playoffs since 2016. That team has been an absolute joke. The Patriots have rebuilt themselves, rather, in one year. And now the Giants, whoever they hire as their next GM, he's going to have to find the next quarterback. So what did Dave Gettleman actually accomplish in New York? He didn't find the quarterback. Doesn't appear he found the head coach either in Joe Judge. And that guy after the game last night, not very impressive listening to Joe Judge at his post-game press conference. But anyway, the Giants have just been a dumpster fire. What a horrible hiring that was, Dave Gettleman. You hired him from Carolina, and in Carolina, he didn't draft any of those guys. He inherited the players from Marty Herney, who drafted Keekley, who drafted Cam Newton. He didn't do any of that. Not to mention he's gone when they drafted McCaffrey. So what the hell did you sign that guy for? Or hire him as your GM? It made no sense whatsoever. But anyway, the point being that a lot of those Monday night games, now there's been some okay ones, they ordinarily suck. So I need more entertainment, right, in my Monday night watching, if you will, because I know ESPN kind of gets screwed. They have... They pay the most money. They get the worst game out of the national games every week. Ordinarily, right? Usually CBS gets a great afternoon game. Now, sometimes they don't work out. Like, for example, that Chiefs-Cowboys game just didn't live up to the hype whatsoever. But Fox gets a really good game. NBC gets a really good game. And ESPN kind of gets screwed as it pertains to the Monday night games. And I want entertainment. I think Peyton does a really good job explaining what's going on, as does Eli. And they entertain you. And they have good guests on. Now... 
I would say this as it pertains to the guests. I don't think they need four. Okay, so last night they had Edelman. They had Kevin Hart, who was really good. I missed. Who did they have in the first quarter? I did not see who they had in the first quarter. Was it a current player? You remember who they had, Justin, in the first quarter? Oh, Bill Parcells. Oh, they had Parcells? Yes, I missed Bill that. Parcells. Okay. I had the, you know, I had the Celtics game on. I had the Monday Night Football game on. So I'm kind of upset. I missed the Parcells. Was he good? You know, like, what was the feedback on that? He told Peyton Manning that if he threw like 25 interceptions, that he would have cut his throat at the 18th. That was kind of funny, but they couldn't really joke with Bill. They didn't yeah, really joke he's a little too, too serious. I get it because it's the Giants. But you had Condoleezza Rice in there. That nothing against Condoleezza Rice. It just wasn't a very entertaining segment. The Edelman segment was very entertaining. The Hart segment was very entertaining. So that'd be my one critique. I don't think you need to force a guest into every quarter. They've had some really good ones, too, by the way. Brady was actually really good on there. And by the way, there's like a Manning curse now. Everybody that goes in the Manning cast, their team loses the next week. Marshawn Lynch was really good, even though he was like swearing on there. Barkley was really good. So they've had a lot of good guests on that thing. And there's also funny tweets like when this is going on as well. So I think it's entertaining. But nonetheless... Monday Night Football, ordinarily, like, it's supposed to be the game of the week. It ordinarily sucks. Let's be real. How many good Monday Night games do you actually get? But anyway, I enjoyed that last night in terms of the Manning cast, but the game obviously sucked. I wasn't overly impressed with the Bucks, by the way, either. Their defense does not look like the same it did a year ago when they won the Super Bowl. But I wanted to get to this real quick before getting back to Edelman. So, and I sort of, I don't, I don't want to say I was all in with this, this theory, but I kind of got it at the time. When the Patriots drafted Mac. Okay, there was an argument made that, well, if the Patriots really loved Mac, they would have traded up and gotten him, right? If they really were in love with Mac and they felt like, okay, this is the next great Patriots quarterback, they would have traded up to get him. Like, the, for example, the Chicago Bears did to get Fields. Like the San Francisco 49ers did to get up to number three to get Trey Lance. And we've seen this happen recently in the NFL. For ex- Like, all these franchise quarterbacks that have been drafted recently, with the exception of, like, the number one picks, they've been traded up for. Josh Allen was traded up for, Pat Mahomes was traded up for, Deshaun Watson was traded up for. All these guys recently have been traded up for. So that was sort of like the argument against Mac Jones was, hey, if Bill really liked him, he would have traded up for him. But if you really look back at that draft, it feels like, at least from my perspective, and at the time I was hesitant to say this, it does feel like he played the board perfectly. So, okay, let's go back to that draft for a second here. So the Jaguars have the number one pick. Everybody knows they're going to take Lawrence. The Jets have the number two pick. Everybody knows they're going to take Zach Wilson. The 49ers had already traded up to three. You know he's, they're going to take a quarterback. I know they they put it out there that it was going to be Mac Jones. Remember that whole thing? Whereas, like, for weeks, everybody thought it was going to be Mac Jones. And it was never – it just kind of got out there. And Kyle Shanahan, he was on vacation. I believe he was in Mexico. Wherever he was on vacation, somebody told him, like, hey, you know this is getting out there that you guys want to tra- draft Mac Third overall, he's like, oh, yeah, just keep it going. Because they were drafting Trey Lance the whole time. He's like, just keep it going. Anyway, the Falcons, they had the fourth pick in that draft. They take Kyle Pitts. That's a team that needs a quarterback of the future. But they didn't do it because of Matt Ryan. Ryan's contract, he had a dead cap hit of $67 million. So they were at least going to give Ryan last season or this season coming up. So they were never going to take a quarterback. Okay, So then you had the Bengals. They already had Joe Burrow. So you knew they weren't taking a quarterback. They take Jamar Chase. You look at a team like the Detroit Lions. For some reason, they wanted to give Goff a chance, even though they could have drafted their franchise quarterback at number five. Fields, 
who is now in their division. I like Fields. He's in their division, and Mac Jones is on the board. They take Sewell. Look, maybe he turns out to be a great player in terms of he was the best tackle on the board. He was considered to be the best prospect, although Slater's really good for the Chargers. But nonetheless, you get the point. So they go with the tackle in Sewell. The Panthers, you knew they weren't taking a quarterback because they're – Dumbass organization, including Matt Rule, who is the final decision maker there. They traded a second round pick for Darnold. That's got to be one of the worst moves that was made this offseason. They gave up a second round draft pick and two other draft picks for Sam Darnold. Now Cam Newton's their quarterback. I get Darnold's dealing with injuries, but clearly they've given up on Darnold. So they draft J.C. Horn. So you knew they weren't taking a quarterback. The Broncos. Now this is a team that could have taken a quarterback, but... Remember what happened on draft night. Remember, on draft day, Adam Schefter comes out with a report that Aaron Rodgers wants to be traded. Okay, so he comes out with that report, and then there's all this reporting about the Broncos. Mark Schlereth, who formerly of ESPN, now with Fox, he does a radio show out there in Denver, of course, won back-to-back Super Bowls with John Elway and the Broncos in the late 90s. He won a Super Bowl with Washington as well, three-time Super Bowl champ. He reports that the Broncos are getting Aaron Rodgers, like that it's getting close to a done deal. So the Broncos this whole time are working on the Aaron Rodgers situation. So they decide, okay, we're not taking a quarterback and they take a corner. Okay, so the Broncos aren't taking one. Then you go to the Bears. They traded up with the Giants. So the Giants wanted one of the corners. Both the corners, this is perfect for the Gettleman era. Both the corners are off the board. And good for the Giants for the next GM because he's going to get an additional pick thanks to Dave Gettleman. But anyway, because Gettleman can't get his corner, he ends up, the Bears trade up, they take Fields. Okay, when the Bears trade up, you know that Fields is off the board, so then you have to play the board the rest of the way before it gets to you two two picks later. The Cowboys take Micah Parsons. You knew they weren't taking a quarterback, right, because they have Dak Prescott. Unless they get wowed by a trade, they're not going to move down because... Remember what everybody was saying about Dallas entering the offseason? Hey, their defense sucks. And it wasn't like some made-up thing. They had one of the worst defenses in the NFL last season. They needed a playmaker. And quite frankly, Parsons has been incredible. He's going to win the defensive rookie of the year. The guy's having an outstanding season. They need a playmaker. They need a dominant player from a defensive perspective. So they're going to take a defensive guy there. Obviously, they're not taking a quarterback, but they want to get a star defensively. So they're not interested in trading down. Belichick reads that. Okay. Well, then who's next on the board? The Jets. Now, the Jets probably would have been willing to play ball because obviously that's a team that's in full rebuild mode right now. So if you look at it, all right, maybe the Saints, but that's 28. They'd have to give up a whole lot to do it. And remember, they have Jameis Winston at the time. And Jameis, of course, done for the season with an injury. But they're going into the offseason with Jameis and Taysom Hill. So they signed Jason. What was that nickname they called him? Taysom Hill, but there was like a Jameis Taysom nickname. But anyway, so they want to go with Jameis. You can argue whether that's dumb or not, but Jameis wasn't bad. I mean, he had some bad games, but he wasn't horrible before the injury. And Sean Payton thinks he can make it work with Jameis, so you probably figure if you're the Saints, do we want to give up at least a first, maybe two firsts, or a first and a second to move up to 14 to take Mac? They decide not to do that, or they decide not even to entertain it. The other team maybe you would consider is the Steelers. But remember, all the reporting coming out of there was they would have taken Fields at 24, but they weren't interested in Mac, So they preferred Fields to Mac. So then at 15, and by the way, the Jets ended up taking Elijah Vera Tucker, 
which it does make sense from the perspective of, okay, if you're not going to move down, you need protection for your young, young quarterback and Zach Wilson. Okay, I understand that. So then the Patriots take Mac. So this whole concept, this whole narrative of, hey, if Bill really liked Mac, he would have traded up for him. Well, I would present the counter argument to that based on everything that I just laid out in terms of how that draft kind of played itself out. Bill read the board right. He read the board right. When you look at it, once once Fields was off the board, and once you look at the next two picks, the Cowboys and the Jets, you know it's not going to happen. When the Panthers traded for Darnold, you know it's not going to happen. When the Broncos think they're getting Aaron Rodgers, you know it's not going to happen. It, you know the Lions, they like off for some dumbass reason. But nonetheless, Bill read the board right. And I am more convinced of this now as I look back at it than I ever was before that Bill read the board correctly. All right, I also wanted to get to this. By the way, if you want to weigh in, 617-779-7937. Are the Patriots legitimate contenders on the AFC? That's on the board all night long. But I wanted to get to this. So last night during the Monday Night Football game, the Manning cast, there was a time in the game where it was already over, but Julian Edelman was on there in the fourth quarter, and you could see Brady and Gronk kind of talking to each other. So Peyton Manning asked Edelman about it. Hey, Julian, what are these guys talking about right now? Uh, I guarantee Gronk saying, like, yo, Tom, like, I don't think I'm, like, quite ready. Like, my, my lungs hurt a little bit. I, I, I need, like, two more, two more days of practice, and I'll be there, babe. And, and Gronk and Tom's probably looking at him like, babe, I thought you did well today, you know? You know, we, we got to keep it going. We got to get it better. You know, like, we, I, I could have got you on that one. But then I, I didn't get you on there. But, hey, you did. You looked great. Tom's like the ultimate confidence guy for, for old Gronk. So but that's probably the extent babe? of it. A lot of babes? A lot of babes. A lot of babes. TB's a babe guy. All right, that's the perfect follow-up by Eli, too, where he's like, babe? So Brady and Gronk call each other babe? Brady's a big babe guy? That's kind of weird. Calling your boy, babe. Hey, what's up, babe? I've never done that with one of my friends. Hey, what's up, babe? How you doing, babe? I figure that's like reserved for your girlfriend or your wife or your fiance. I don't. I didn't realize that was reserved to like one of your buddies. Like I get bro. What's up, bro? How you doing, man? Or man or dude? What's up, dude? But I've never done that. What's up, babe? Apparently Brady calls Gronk babe. Kind of weird if you ask me. Kind of weird. 617-779-7937 is the number. Brian Barrett with you. Up until midnight. Now, I did want to get into Ryan Tannehill for a second here because over the past couple of years, Tannehill has been really good since going to Tennessee. You could argue part of it is the offense. I know Arthur Smith now with the Falcons, but at the beginning of the season, before the Henry injury, the offense was pretty much the same there in Tennessee. But here are the last three games for Ryan Tannehill since he didn't have Derrick Henry as part of the equation. 35 of 52 last week. He had to throw the ball 52 times. Why? Because they couldn't run the ball whatsoever. And that comes back to the Derrick Henry factor, right? With Ryan Tannehill, he's not a Pat Mahomes type where you want him throwing the ball that much. Last week, they ran for just 69 yards, so they needed Tannehill to try to carry the offense against a bad Texans team. Well, what happened? Okay, yeah, he throws for 323 yards, but again, he did it on 52 attempts. One touchdown, four interceptions. And if you go back and watch some of that game, two of those interceptions were absolutely atrocious. So here's the thing about Tannehill. When you play on schedule with Tannehill, when he has the running game, when he can get the play-action passing game going, because he's really good, he's really good on boots, that type of stuff. But when you ask Tannehill to be the major piece, to carry the offense, he can't do it. He needs that Derrick Henry guy, if you will. 
Week before that, 19 for 27, 213, one touchdown, no picks. 213 on 27 attempts. Not a good number. The week prior to that. Now, they won this game, but he was 19 of 27 for a buck 43, 143 yards. Think about that. He threw for only 143 yards on 27 attempts. That's awfully difficult to do. One touchdown, one interception. So if you look at that stretch for Tannehill, this three-game stretch without having the luxury of handing the football off to Derrick Henry or having the play-action passing game going with a Derrick Henry, three touchdowns, five interceptions, 226 yards per game. Now, luckily for Tennessee, their defense has been really good during that stretch, and they've won two of those three games, but you get the overwhelming point. This is an offense in Tennessee that came into the season with lofty expectations because they had the running champ, the rushing champ, and Derrick Henry. He would again, would have won it again, rather, if he didn't go down with the injury. They had A.J. Brown on one side, and they had Julio Jones on the other side. But here is the reality for this team right now. They don't have Julio Jones. He's been dealing with a hamstring injury. Basically, has been a non-factor for that team for the majority of the season. A.J. Brown is dealing with an injury right now in terms of his ribs. X-rays came back negative, but he left the game last week. And you don't have the best running back in the NFL in Derrick Henry. So you're going with Adrian Peterson, who you just cut because he wasn't good anymore. So you got Jeremy McNichols. That's who you're going with as your running back right now. They don't have any depth at the running back position. And this is the difference between, say, like the Tennessee offense and some of the other elite offenses in the NFL. This isn't just a plug-and-play off. Even the Patriots, to a lesser extent, you can take Damian Harris out, and you have Ramondre Stevenson now. And not to say that it's all about the scheme, but you have a legitimate replacement. And quite frankly, you could make the argument, that, and I have on multiple occasions, that Stevenson is the more talented back. So with the Patriots, they have a legitimate one-two punch. With the Tennessee Titans, there is no replacing Derrick Henry, and there is no replacing a guy that you completely build your offense around. So when you look at Tannehill's numbers being way down across the board, it is clearly because of the absence of a guy like Derrick Henry. And that's another reason why I think the Patriots win this game on Sunday is Ryan Tannehill is not going to carry an offense over the Patriots. The only way Tennessee wins this game on Sunday, the only way is if Mac Jones and the Patriots offense play poorly. And if the Titans defense and well, it's, their overall numbers are not great, but Harold Landry's had a good season, et cetera. If Mike Vrabel and company, can come up with a game plan to confuse the Patriots offense, to confuse Mac Jones and company. And really, if Mike Vrabel outcoaches Bill Belichick, that's the only way they're winning this game. Vrabel's going to have to come up with something really either confusing or just a really good scheme defensively to stop Mac Jones and company because if they don't, there's no way their offense can win this game. We've seen it over the past couple of weeks. Their offense cannot win games without Derrick Henry, and they were built as an offensive football team. All right, 617-779-7937 is the number. Brian Barrett with you up until midnight. So if you want to weigh in on this, are the Patriots a legitimate contender in the AFC? Also on the table as well, what do you expect the Patriots to do against the Titans this week? That's on the table at 617-779-7937. But I do want to get to this. One really good sign for the Celtics. We'll get to that next year on WEI. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, 
You deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. We're right back to what you want to hear. More of Brian Barrett on EEI. Four straight games for Jason, 30-plus. What's the biggest difference you're seeing in him? Shot making. I mean, the shots that he was getting, he's knocking them down now. Being extra aggressive, I, I think attacking the basket a little bit more, getting more free throws that, that happened over the last few games, but still doing what he did early, getting the same shots that he was missing that we knew would flip eventually, but he's also finding guys passing the ball extremely well, so very well-rounded games in general. Uh, the scoring is there because of the made shots, but we never overreacted to that in the first place. All right, that was the head coach, Ime Adoka, after the game last night. Celtics, of course, beat the Rockets, and they've been on a winning streak here. They've now won three in a row. So what do you make of Tatum sort of turning his season around? 617-779-7937 is the number. Now, Ime Adoka referenced the free throws. That is a big difference. So if you look at it, the last four games where Tatum's been on this unbelievable stretch, he's averaging 7.3 free throw attempts per game. So that's over the last four, which is really good, of course. The first 14 games of the season, he only got to the free throw line 4.9 times per game. So if you look at it, that's a 2.4 increase. So he's getting to the line almost two and a half times more than he was before. Not to mention, he's shooting better from the free throw line. 89.7% from the line. You look at him previous to that, he was shooting just 76.8% from the line over the first 14 games. So you're talking about nearly a 13% increase as pertains to his free throw shooting. And this is something going back to the offseason that he mentioned two years ago with his trainer, Drew Hanlon. They needed to get him to the free throw line more. And this is the number that you should get from Jason Tatum. If you're an elite scorer in this league, you should be getting to the free throw line at least seven times per game. Because that means you can beat your guy off the dribble and you can get to the free throw line. If you go back to last season, six of the top seven scorers in the NBA average north of seven free throw attempts per game. This is how you get to be one of the leading scorers in the NBA. In fact, last year, the only guy out of the top seven scorers in the NBA that wasn't over seven free throw attempts per game was Steph Curry because Steph Curry is just a totally different phenomenon that we've never seen in the history of the NBA before. So he's an outlier. Jason Tatum needs to continue to get the free throw line more, and we saw that last night. Now, the points per game over the last four, 33.5. And during that stretch since last Wednesday against the Atlanta Hawks, that's the most in the NBA. If you look at prior to that, he was at just 23.5 points per game. So you're talking about a 10-point increase in those last four games. Well, why is he, or how is he doing it? Ime Joker's right. It's about the shooting. He's shooting 50% from the floor during this four-game stretch. Prior to that, he was shooting 38.6% from the field. Atrocious. That wasn't Jason Tatum. So you're talking about an 11.4% increase. Then you look at the three-point shooting. 
38.1% over his last four, and that came down after last night. And the most, because he was one for eight, but the most impressive thing is he's getting up 10 and a half per game. So 38.1% on 10 and a half is pretty good. Prior to that, he was shooting 31.6% from three. So that's a six and a half percent increase. So this is what I don't understand about Tatum is why did it take so long? I don't understand it. Like these are the numbers that Tatum, and now he's not going to shoot 50% for the remainder of the year and average at 33.5 points per game. But the 38.1% from three is doable. Getting to the free throw line 7.3 times a night, it's doable. Shooting 89.7% from the free throw line, that's doable. Grabbing eight and a half rebounds per game like he has in this four-game stretch, that's doable. All that stuff is doable with the exception of the point total. And he could shoot 50% from the field. I wouldn't guess it over an entire season, but somewhere similar to 47, 48%. Sure, he can do that. We've seen him do that before. I just don't understand why it took him so long. I'm not telling you, like, I'm not saying it's about effort or anything along those lines, but I don't understand how it takes a guy this long to start shooting the ball well. We're talking about a 14-game sample size where he was atrocious, 38% from the field and 31% from three. It just doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. But the one thing I think we realize now is, all right, Tatum's going to turn his season around. He's not going to stay this hot forever, but Tatum has now turned his season around, which is the big thing with this team because he was so bad at the beginning of the season from a shooting perspective in terms of his percentages that you felt like at some time it needed to turn, and clearly it has now. So Jason Tatum is back to being the Jason Tatum that we expected him to be at the beginning of the season. You now have Jalen Brown back from the injury. So at least now you know that this Celtics team has its two best players and the guy that was supposed to be the best player on the team entering the season is now back to actually shooting the basketball with some level of consistency, which of course he didn't have at the beginning of the season, really through the first 14 games of the season. So it feels like at least Jason Tatum has found it. And now you get Jalen Brown back from the injury. Now, couple of concerns. The first one is this. Robert Williams is dealing with an injury again. And of course, he has not played in the past couple of games because he's been dealing with left knee tendinopathy. This is a guy that deals with stuff every single season. And I want to buy in to Robert Williams because when he's on the floor, it feels like he always flashes. He really helps this team offensively because he puts pressure on the rim. They don't have another guy like Robert Williams where When Jason Tatum gets a high screen from Robert Williams, you have to be incredibly threatened if you're the defense because you know that Robert Williams is diving to the basket. It's a different look. Now, Horford's had an outstanding season. Nobody would dispute that. He's been absolutely incredible for what you've asked him to do this season. But Horford's not that type of player. Horford's been really good, and I'm not saying that Horford shouldn't be on the court all the time because he has been tremendous. But Horford's different in terms of that pick-and-roll situation where he's more of a pick-and-pop guy, especially at this point in his career, And Robert Williams is that guy that can put the pressure on the basket. And the other thing about Robert Williams is this. The Celtics, during the last seven games or so, they've had the number one defense in the NBA. They've been absolutely dominant. Really, if you go back to the game against the Bulls, where the Bulls had that, I don't want to say epic comeback. It was more of an epic collapse from the Celtics. It wasn't like the Bulls were doing anything out of this world. Great. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from Chicago, but that, from my perspective, was more of a Celtics meltdown. Then it was like this unbelievable performance from the Bulls. Remember the Celtics like barely scored in that fourth quarter. But if you go back to that time, the Celtics since then have had the number one defense in the NBA. They've been really good. In fact, they've been like two points better per 100 possessions than anybody else in the league during the stretch. So they've been absolutely phenomenal from a defensive perspective. But here's the thing that I worry about is it does feel like it's 
a smarter strategy, if you will, to stagger the Robert Williams, Al Horford minutes. And it's not as if those guys weren't playing well together when they were both on the floor, which does seem like it's kind of a weird fit having the two traditional bigs. You don't see that as much in the modern day NBA, but the numbers actually were pretty good with those two guys in the court at the same time. But when you have both those guys off the court, it really hurts the integrity of the defense. So you felt like going forward, you're going to have those guys as sort of that one-two punch where when Al's not on the floor, because Al's fourth in the NBA right now and blocks shots per game. And with Robert Williams, he's that other guy that can put pressure on the offense in terms of his ability to block shots. But now with Robert Williams out, that does kind of hurt that secondary, that defense in terms of staggering the minutes and always having either Al or Robert Williams on the court. Not to say you can guarantee one of those guys is on the court of all times, but I love that card that Ime Adoka can play is using one of those guys in terms of the staggered. So basically for the majority of the game, you have one of those two guys on the court because that's the most important part of your defense to go along with Smart, who's had an outstanding defensive season. After a slow start to the season defensively, he's been really good as of late. He's been one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA. In fact, he is second in the league at last glance in terms of deflections. It was him and Chris Paul. They go back and forth, and Marcus Smart's up there in steals as well. But nonetheless, getting back to the original point, is it's most important that you actually have somebody inside that you can funnel the offense to in terms of both Al Horford and Robert Williams. So I just wor worry about the health of Time Lord long term. If we're talking about a kid that's been in the league, what is his fourth season? Every year he's dealing, whether it's a hip, whether it's a knee, it's just every season, it's something with this guy. Now, the other question I would have about this team is about the president of basketball operations now and Brad Stevens is what is he going to do to improve this team? Because clearly... This is not a team that has reached its peak, right? It feels like they came down from where they were a couple of years ago when they were, what, two wins away from the NBA Finals. But obviously, this isn't a team that's rebuilding. This isn't a team where you're looking to get a lottery pick next season. You have Jason Tatum, who's entering his prime years. Jalen Brown is in his prime right now. You're trying to make a playoff push. So how does Brad Stevens upgrade this roster at the trading deadline? Because he clearly needs... A third guy that can make plays offensively. I know Schroeder can do it a little bit, but you'd like one more guy on the wing. Doesn't it feel like this team is short a wing? After Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, who are you playing on the wings? Richardson is a smaller shooting guard. He's fine for a shooting guard, but he's smaller. I'm not the biggest Richardson guy. I would just play Neesmith more. It felt weird last night for them to all be celebrating after Neesmith hit a shot. Like This guy was the 14th overall pick in the draft a couple of years ago. Now Langford's getting more burn as well. But I would just like a guy of forward size, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum size, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, that can put the ball in the court, that can make plays, that can shoot, that can score. Somebody that can make his own offense. And right now, yeah, you have that in Dennis Schroeder at the point guard position, but I would like one more guy that can create his own shot. Because really, isn't there only three guys in this team that can create their own shot? You don't want Marcus Smart to, and he doesn't really beat a lot of guys up the dribble nowadays. But it's basically Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Dennis Schroeder. Those are the only guys that can create their own shot on this team. And that's why I just, just keep coming back to this. Man, the Hayward thing was just so mismanaged. They never found a suitable replacement from Hayward. Think about this. In Hayward's last year with the Celtics, he averaged 17.5 per game. He shot 38.3% from three and 50% from the field. Not to mention the fact that he averaged 4.1 assists per game that season, which led the Celtics. This year, 17.6 a game. He's given you 3.4 assists, 5.1 rebounds per game, 47% from the field, 42% from three-point territory. So it just, I feel like part of the Hayward issue was he just couldn't come to 
the realization in some way in terms of where he was as a player. And, of course, the Celtics didn't want to go to that value in terms of the money, and it felt like Hayward had kind of gotten sick of here and his role with the team. And remember, at one point, he was coming off the bench. So it was a weird situation for Hayward, especially post-injury situation. But they really never found a replacement for that guy. Remember, when Danny Ainge was still running the team before Brad took over this past offseason, you had the Miles Turner-Doug McDermott deal that didn't happen, so you passed on that, which meant at the trading deadline you had that TPE that you got from the Gordon Hayward signing, and you used that, or part of that, I should say, to pick up a guy like Evan Fournier. But Evan Fournier comes here, and he barely plays because basically, what was it, two games after his debut, he develops COVID, he's not good in the postseason, he gets this huge contract from the Knicks, so the Celtics don't bring him back. So, in essence, you got nothing for Gordon Hayward leaving because the TPE went to Evan Fournier, and you didn't sign Evan Fournier long-term, and it's that third playmaker because Hayward would be the best playmaker on this team. So that's the big thing that you never replaced. Even, I would say, argue more so than Kyrie because the Kyrie situation was just never going to work out here. But the biggest piece is the Hayward piece. You were never able to find a way to suitably replace that guy. All right, 617-779-7937 is the number. Brian Barrett with you up until midnight. So if you want to weigh in on the Patriots, are they legitimate contenders on the in the AFC, rather? That's on the table. What do you make of this recent turnaround from Tatum? Do you think now his season's on track? What does Brad Stevens need to do to improve this team? Plus, one thing that is not good for the Red Sox. I'll get into that next here on WEI. We're right back to it. This is Brian Barrett on EEI. This Mac Jones is is moving it around. And I'm seeing how hot they are. And I'm thinking, Jesus, they've already won uh, seven games now. They have six games to go, albeit four of them against, uh, two against the Bills. Don't like that. One against Tennessee and one against uh, the Colts. If they win half those games, that's 10 wins. And it's going to be because of Mac Jones. So the point I'm making is MVP. Mac Jones, I think, pretty much has wrapped up offensive rookie of the year. But the MVP of the league is not just statistics. It's about who's the most important player in the league to their team, especially if this New England teams go to the playoffs and win a playoff game. Hey, I submit you got to start talking about Mac Jones as MVP. Run. All right, well, now you know Mac Jones having an outstanding season because O.J. Simpson has said that Mac Jones should be in the MVP conversation. He couldn't be more wrong about that. This isn't an indictment on Mac. You see that there's a bunch of guys across the league, like the guy that used to play here in Tom Brady, that deserves to be in the MVP conversation before Mac Jones. Now, he's also wrong when he says that Mac Jones has wrapped up the offensive rookie of the year. Now, if it was me right now and I had the vote, I would vote for Mac Jones. But Jamar Chase is definitely in the conversation. It's between those two guys. Chase is having an outstanding season for the Bengals. He's basically emerged as by far their number one option. He's been one of the better receivers in the NFL as a rookie. So he's definitely not wrapped that up yet. He's still got some time to go there. And especially it's going to, a lot's going to be considered in terms of what Chase does down the end of the season as well. And Mac's got this huge stretch coming up. But OJ says that, hey, it's wrapped up and Mac should now be in the MVP conversation. So Dak Prescott, Tom Brady, and now throw Mac in the conversation, according to OJ Simpson. I mean, that's just an atrocious take. He hasn't even been the best player on his own team. Matthew Judon's been the best player on the Patriots. There's no real question. And by the way, hasn't been the second best player. JC Jackson has been the second best player on the team. Anyway, I wanted to get to this. So some unfortunate news for the Red Sox today. Kendall Graveman has 
signed a deal with the White Sox, three years, $24 million. Actually, a very reasonable deal if you think about it. There was three relievers I wanted the Red Sox to get one of. Kendall Graveman, Rysel Iglesias, and Ryan Tapera. Now, obviously, Tapera, you would think he's not going to go back to Chicago now. That's where he spent the remainder or the end of last season after the trading deadline. Now, Graveman was my third pick out of this group, but that's one guy off the board. You would think that Iglesias and Tapera both are going to get more money than him. So Bloom had an opportunity to get a guy at a reasonable price. Three years and $24 million for a guy at Graveman's stature, .98 whip, a .180 opponent's batting average, has a really good sinker, a four-seamer, a slider that righties cannot hit. In fact, that slider, we saw it against the Red Sox in the ALCS. 43.8% whiff rate on that pitch. So when guys swing at that pitch, they're whiffing almost 44% of the time, which is just insane. So this was obviously a missed opportunity from the Red Sox, from my perspective, if they don't get Rysel Iglesias or Ryan Tapera. Both those guys are nasty as well. Iglesias had a 37.7% strikeout rate last season. That was eighth amongst relievers. His .93 whip was ninth. He's got a great fastball, nasty slider, filthy changeup. Okay, he should be number one on the list. He's that good. He's 32. He has now had three consecutive really good seasons as a reliever, which we don't often see in Major League Baseball. There's only, what, like 10 guys you can depend on across the sport on a yearly basis. He's one of them right now. Now, the other guy is Tapera. Tapera is filthy because, remember, he got traded to the White Sox, and so did Craig Kimbrell, and Kimbrell was the story, and he should have been at the time. He had a great start to the season with Chicago, but Tapera was better for the White Sox. You look at Tapera on the season, .88 whip and a 161 opponent's batting average. Here's the thing about Tapera, too. He's actually better against lefties as a righty because he has a filthy changeup. And when I look at him from a Red Sox perspective, this fit would make a whole lot of sense. And you would think both these guys, Iglesias and Tapera, are going to be slightly more expensive than was Kendall Graveman. But now you got to get one of these two guys. Because if you really look at the Red Sox bullpen, outside of Garrett Whitlock, and let's say if Tanner Houck's in the bullpen, but you would think Houck's going to start the season in the rotation, you don't have a lot of dependable arms out there. So you need to get one of the premium guys. This is what the Red Sox need to do. It's imperative to upgrade the bullpen. And Kendall Graveman's a guy that clearly would have done that, and the Red Sox didn't go after him. Or at least... They didn't end up with the prize, if you will. Maybe we'll get reporting that they went after him. But as of this point right now, he's with the Chicago White Sox. Now, Rob Bradford had the story up today at WEI.com that the Sox are in on Familia, Jairus Familia from the Mets. I don't want any part of that guy. The numbers are not great. And quite frankly, he cannot pitch against lefties. Lefties had 270 against him last season. 855 OPS. So he wasn't good. And the rest of his numbers aren't good either. If you want the raw numbers, a 394 ERA, 103rd out of 144 relievers. Now, his defense was not great, but still his FIP, fielding independent of pitching, 444. That's 110th out of 144 relievers. 141 whip, 119th out of 144 relievers. Walk rate wasn't good either. He walked 10.3% of batters. That's 93rd out of 144 relievers. And here's the problem. He doesn't have a pitch for lefties. As I mentioned, 270 lefties hit against him. He's got a sinker that he throws 59% of the time. Opponents, by the way, hit 283 against that. His slider, he throws 23.2% of the time. Opponents hit 289 against that. And here's the thing. He threw his slider almost as often to lefties as he did righties. Six more to righties on the season. A slider is a pitch as a right-handed pitcher that you're going to be throwing a lot more to righties than lefties, but he doesn't have a third pitch. Threw just 33 splitters on the season. He's got a four-seamer that he only threw 14.5% of the time. 
So the issue for me is if you're going to go out and get a reliever and spend money on a reliever, don't get a guy that can only pitch against right-handed hitters. The Red Sox don't need a guy that is a specialist against righties. They need a guy that can pitch against lefties and righties. That's why Heim Bloom needs to go out and either get Ryan Tapera now because he's still on the market or Rysel Iglesias. He needs to get one of those two guys because Kendall Graveman, no longer available. He'll be playing the next three years for the White Sox unless they have some kind of epic collapse and have to get rid of him. But you get the point. Now, out of the three big relievers available out there, only one of them is left. Or only two of them are left, and you got to get one of them. Thanks to Justin for producing. I'm back with you tomorrow from 6 to 10. Have a great night, everybody. Be safe and be well. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 